Welcome back, my friends, to the Big Book Podcast. My name is Howard, and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since 1988, one day at a time. In this episode, the 20th, 21st, and 22nd stories from the Personal Stories section of the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, published in 1939. These relatively short stories, which appeared only in the first edition of the Big Book, are entitled A Close Shave, Educated Agnostic, and Another Prodigal Story. They reveal the universal experience of alcoholics marked by the inability to control their drinking and the descent into a hopeless state of mind, body, and spirit from which they got sober, thanks to the experience, strength, and hope so freely given them by other recovering alcoholics. And now, the original stories, A Close Shave, Educated Agnostic, and Another Prodigal Story. A Close Shave The year 1890 witnessed my advent as the youngest of five sons to a fine Christian mother and a hard-working blacksmith father. At the age of eight, my father used to send me after his pail of beer, and it was by lapping the foam off the beer that I first discovered that the taste was much to my liking. By the time I was fourteen, at which time I quit school, I had found that wine and hard cider were also pleasing to my palate. The next six years I spent learning the art of barbering, and by the end of this period I had become both a proficient barber and an earnest drinker. During the next ten or twelve years, I was able to acquire several lucrative shops, some with pool rooms and restaurants attached. It seemed quite impossible, however, for me to stand prosperity, so I would drink myself out of one situation, get myself together a bit, develop another, and then repeat the performance. The time came when I could no longer refinance myself, so I began to float about the country, getting a job here and there as I could, but invariably I got fired in a short time because of my unreliability. My marriage, which occurred in 1910, about the time I started my successful ownership of shops, resulted in our having a family of ten children who were usually desperately in need because I used my slender income for booze instead of providing for them. I finally secured a job in a shop in a town of about 4,500 people, where I live now. My reputation for drinking soon became more or less generally known. About this time, a deacon and the pastor of one of the local churches used to come in the shop for their work and were constantly inviting me to church and Bible classes, which invitations irritated me very much. I earnestly wished they would mind their own business. I finally did accept one or two invitations to social functions at the home of one of these men and was received so cordially that the barrier between us was partially lowered. I did not stop drinking, however, though my feeling toward these men was kindly. They at last persuaded me to go to a nearby town to have a talk with a doctor who had had a great deal of experience with this type of trouble. I listened to the man for two hours, and although my mind was quite foggy, I retained a good deal of what he said. I feel that the combined effort of these three Christian gentlemen made it possible for me to have a vital spiritual experience. This occurred in March 1937. For about six years previous to this time, I was never at any time completely free from the influence of liquor. 
Since that time, I have regained the love of my family and the respect of the community, and can truthfully say that the past two years have been the happiest of my life. I have busied myself a great deal during these two years in helping others who were afflicted as I was, and the combined efforts of the deacon, the pastor, and myself have resulted in nine other men finding a way out of difficulties which were identical with mine. I feel this activity has played an important part in my mastery of this most devastating habit. Educated Agnostic Why go into the drinking pattern that is so much the same with all of us? Three times I had left the hospital with hope that I was saying goodbye forever, and here I was again. The first day there, I told the kindly doctor that I was a thoroughly hopeless case and would probably continue to return as long as I could beg, borrow, or steal the money to get in. On the second day, he told me that he knew of something that would keep me off liquor for life. I laughed at him. Yes, indeed, I would do anything or take anything that would produce such results, but there wasn't anything. On the third day, a man came to talk with me. He was an alcoholic who had stopped. He talked about alcoholism and a spiritual way of life. I was deeply impressed by his seriousness, but nothing that he said made sense to me. He spoke about God and a power greater than oneself. I remember being very careful not to say anything that might shake his faith in whatever it was he believed. I was deeply grateful to him for taking the trouble to talk with me, but what he had was not for me. I had thought much about religion and had come to rather definite conclusions. There was no God. The universe was an inexplicable phenomenon. In spite of my sorry state and outlook, there were many beautiful things in life, but no beauty. There were truths discoverable about life, but no truth. There were people who were good, kind, considerate, but no such thing as goodness. I had read rather extensively, but when people began to talk in such ultimates, I was lost. I could find in life no eternal purpose nor anything that might be labeled divine guidance. War, illness, cruelty, stupidity, poverty, and greed were not and could not be the product of any purposeful creation. The whole thing simply didn't make sense. About this I felt no deep emotion. I had struggled with the problem during late adolescence, but had long since ceased to give it anxious thought. Many people believe in a God of some sort and worship Him in various ways. That was excellent. I thought it nice that so many people, poor misguided souls, could find so simple a solution to their problems. If this world proved too hopelessly disillusioning, they could always seek comfort in a more pleasant existence promised in a world to come where wrongs would be righted and justice tempered with tender mercy would prevail. But none of that was for me. I had enough courage and intellectual honesty to face life as I saw it, without recourse to a self-erected deity. The next day, another man visited me. He, too, had been an alcoholic and stopped drinking. He pointed out that I found myself unable to handle my liquor problem by myself. He had been in the same position yet he hadn't had a drink in over three years. He told me of other men who had found sobriety through the recognition of some power beyond themselves. If I cared to, I was to consider myself invited to a gathering the following Tuesday, where I would meet other alcoholics who had stopped. 
With the knowledge I now have, it is hard for me to recall how screwy the whole thing sounded. The blind leading the blind, a union of drunks all banded together in some kind of spiritual belief. What could be more idiotic? But these men were sober. Nuts. I returned to my despairing wife with this incoherent story of a bunch of drunks who had found a cure for their alcoholism through some kind of spiritual exercise, and who held regular meetings where, as far as I could figure out, they went through some kind of spiritual exercise. She was very nearly convinced that my mental balance had now been completely and probably permanently destroyed. The only rational support I could find for giving it a try was that it was vouched for by the kindly doctor whom she had met on several occasions at the hospital. That and the fact that nothing else worked. May I stop at this point and address a few sentences direct to agnostic or atheistically inclined alcoholics. You can't take less stock in the references made to God in this book than I would have if this book had been available to me at that time. To you, those references have no meaning. They have simply used a name that people give to a fond delusion. All your life, except possibly in early childhood, when you conceived of an enormous figure with a flowing white beard somewhere beyond the clouds, it has meant nothing. You have now too much intelligence and honesty to allow of such delusions. Even if you could, you are too proud to affirm a belief, now that you are in desperate trouble, that you denied when things were rosy. Or you might possibly persuade yourself to believe in some creative force or algebraic X. But what earthly good would an X be in solving such a problem as you face? And, even admitting, from your knowledge of psychology, it is possible you might acquire such delusions, how could you possibly believe in them if you recognize them as delusions? Some such thinking must have been going on in your mind as you have weighed these incredible experiences against your own inability to cope with a problem that is gradually destroying your personality. Rest assured that such questions were in my mind. I could see no satisfactory solution to any of them but I kept hard to the only thing that seemed to hold out any hope, and gradually my difficulties were lessened. I have not given up my intellect for the sake of my soul, nor have I destroyed my integrity to preserve my health and sanity. All I had feared to lose, I have gained, and all I feared to gain, I have lost. But to conclude my story, the following Tuesday, hardly daring to hope, and fearful of the worst, my wife and I attended our first gathering with former alcoholic slaves, who had been made free through the rediscovery of a power for good, found through a spiritual attitude toward life. I know that I have never before been so inspired. It was not anything that happened, because nothing happened, nor yet by anything that was said, but more by an atmosphere created by friendliness, sincerity, honesty, confidence, and good cheer. I couldn't believe that these men could have been drunks, and yet gradually I learned their stories. Alcoholics, every one. That was, with me, the beginning of a new life. It would be difficult, if not impossible, for me to put into words the change that has taken place in me. I have since learned that with many members the change has been almost instantaneous. This was not the case with me. I was tremendously inspired at first, but my basic thinking was not altered that evening, nor did I expect any profound change. 
I felt that while the spiritual aspect of what these men had was not for me, I did believe strongly in the emphasis they put on the need to help others. I felt that if I could have the inspiration of these gatherings, and if I could have an opportunity to try and help others, that the two together would reinforce my own willpower and thus be of tremendous assistance. But gradually, in a manner I cannot explain, I began to re-examine the beliefs I had thought beyond criticism. Almost imperceptibly, my whole attitude toward life underwent a silent revolution. I lost many worries and gained confidence. I found myself saying and thinking things that a short time ago I would have condemned as platitudes. A belief in the basic spirituality of life has grown, and with it belief in a supreme and guiding power for good. In the process of this change, I can recognize two immensely significant steps for me. The first step I took was when I admitted to myself for the first time that all my previous thinking might be wrong. The second step came when I consciously wished to believe. As a result of this experience, I am convinced that to seek is to find, to ask is to be given. The day never passes that I do not silently cry out in thankfulness, not merely for my release from alcohol, but even more for a change that has given life new meaning, dignity, and beauty. Another Prodigal Story Hello, pal. Hello, buddy. Have a drink? Got one. Come over on the next stool. I'm lonesome. Hell of a world. You said it, brother. Hell of a world. You taking rye? Mine's gin. God, I'm up against it now. How's that? Oh, same old hell, hell, hell. She's gonna leave me now. Your wife? Yeah, how am I gonna live? Can't go home like this. Too damn drunk to stay out. Can't land in jail. Will if I stay out. Ruin my business. Business going anyway. Break her heart. Where is she, you ask? She's at the store. Working, I guess. Probably eating her heart out waiting for me. What time is it? Seven o'clock? Uh, store's been closed an hour. She's gone home by now. Well, what the hell? Have one more, then I'll go. That is the hazy recollection of my last debauch, nearly a year ago now. By the time my new barfly friend and I had soaked up several more, I was shedding tears and he, in the tender throes of drunken sympathy, was working out a guaranteed plan whereby my wife would greet me with great joy and outspread arms as soon as we got home. Yes, we were going to my home. He was the finest fixer in the world. He knew all about how to handle wives. He admitted that. So, two drunks, now lifetime buddies, stumbled out arm in arm, headed up the hill towards home. A draft of cool air cleared some of the fog away from my befuddled brain. Wait a minute, what's this so-and-so plan of yours? I got to know about it, I said. I got to know what you're going to say and what I say. The plan was a honey. All he had to do was to lead me up to the apartment, ring the bell, ask my wife if I was her husband, and then tell her he had found me down at the river about to jump from the bridge and had saved my life. That's all there is to it, he kept mumbling over and over. Works every time, never fails. On up the hill we staggered. 
Then my lifesaver got a better idea that would clinch the deal. He'd have to go home first and put on clean linen. Couldn't let the nice lady see a dirty shirt. That sounded all right. Maybe he'd have a bottle at his home. So we stumbled up to his place, a dreary third-floor back room on a third-rate street. I have a hazy recollection of that place, but have never been able to find it since. There was a photograph of a quite pretty girl on his dresser. He told me it was a picture of his wife and that she had kicked him out because he was drunk. You know how women are, he said. Some fixer. He did put on a clean shirt all right, and then reached into a drawer and pulled out a thirty-eight caliber revolver. That gave me quite a sobering shock. I reached for the gun, realizing in a hazy way that here was trouble. He began to pull the trigger, and every moment I expected to hear an explosion, but the gun was empty. He proved it. Then he got a new idea. To reconcile my wife and make her happy, he would tell her the gun was mine, that I had stood on the bridge with the gun at my head, and that he snatched it away just in time to save my life. God Almighty must have, at that moment, granted me a flash of sanity. I quickly excused myself while he was completing his toilet, and, on the pretext of phoning my wife, rushed noisily down the stairs and ran down the street with all my might. Some blocks away, I came to a drugstore, bought a pint of gin, and drank half it in several large gulps, staggered on up to my apartment, and tumbled into bed, fully dressed and dead drunk. That wasn't any new terror for my wife. This sort of thing had been going on for several years, only I was getting worse and worse with each drunken spree and more difficult to handle. Only the previous day I had been in an accident. A good Samaritan saw my condition and got me away quickly, before the police came, and drove me back to my home. I was dreadfully drunk that day, and my wife consulted a lawyer as preliminary to entering divorce action. I swore to her that I wouldn't drink again, and within twenty-four hours, here I was in bed, dead drunk. Several months previously, I had spent a week in a New York hospital for alcoholics and came out feeling that everything would be all right. Then I began to think that I had the thing licked. I could practice a little controlled drinking. I knew I couldn't take much, but just one drink before dinner. That went all right, too. Sure, I had it licked now. The next step was to take one quick one at noon and cover it up with a milkshake. To make it doubly sure, I'd have ice cream put into the milkshake, and then, so help me, I don't know what the next step down was, but I surely landed at the bottom with an awful, heartbreaking thud. The next morning was June 7th. I recall the date so well because the 6th is my daughter's birthday, and that, by the grace of God, was my last spree. That morning I was afraid to open my eyes. Surely my wife would have kept her promise and left me. I loved my wife. It is a paradox, I know, but I did and do. When I did stir, there she was, sitting at my bedside. Come on, she said. Get up, bathe, shave, and dress. We're going to New York this morning. New York, I said. To the hospital? Yes. I haven't any money to pay a hospital. I know you haven't, she said, but I arranged it all last night over long distance, and I'm going to give you that one chance once again. If you let me down this time, that's all there is. Well, I went into the hospital again, feeling like a whipped cur. 
My wife pleaded with the doctor to please do something to save her husband, to save her home, to save our business and our self-respect. The doctor assured us that he really had something for me this time that would work, and with that faint hope we separated, she to hurry back home 150 miles away and carry on the work of two people, and I to sit trembling and fearful there in what seemed to me a shameful place. Four days later, a man called on me and seemed interested to know how I was coming along. He told me that he, too, had been there several times, but had now found relief. That night, another man came. He, too, had suffered the same trouble and told how he and the other fellow, and several more, had been released from alcohol. Then the next day, a fine fellow came and, in a halting but effective way, told how he had placed himself in God's hand in keeping. Almost before I knew it, I was asking God to clean me up. I suppose there are many who feel a strong resentment against such a spiritual approach. Some of Alcoholics Anonymous, whom I have met since that day, tell me they had difficulty in accepting a simple, day-to-day plan of faith. In my case, I was ripe for such an opportunity perhaps because of early religious training. I have always, it seemed, had a keen sense of the fact and presence of God. That, too, like loving my wife and at the same time hurting her so dreadfully, is paradoxical, but it's a fact. I knew that God was there with infinite love, and yet, somehow, I kept on drifting further and further away. But now I do feel that my heart and mind are tuned in, and by His grace there will be no more alcoholic static. After making this final agreement, not just another resolution, to let God be first in my life, the whole outlook and horizon brightened up in a manner which I am unable to describe except to say that it was glorious. The following day was Monday, and my ex-alcoholic friend insisted that I check out from the hospital and come over to his home in Jersey. I did that, and there I found a lovely wife and children all so happy about the whole thing. The next night I was taken to a meeting at the home of an ex-alcoholic in Brooklyn, where, to my surprise, there were more than 30 men like myself, telling of a liberty of living unmatched by anything I had ever seen. Since returning to my home, life has been so different. I have paid off the old debts, have money enough now for decent clothes and some to use in helping others, a thing which I enjoy doing but didn't do when I had to contribute so generously to alcohol. I am trying to help other alcoholics. At this writing, there are four of us working, all of whom have been kicked around dreadfully. There is no cocky feeling about this for me. I know I am an alcoholic, and while I used to call on God to help me, my conclusion is that I was simply asking God to help me drink alcohol without its hurting me, which is a far different thing than asking Him to help me not to drink at all. So, here I stand, living day to day in His presence, and it is wonderful. This prodigal came home. This concludes the reading of A Close Shave, educated agnostic, and another prodigal story from the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm grateful you listened. Stay tuned for the next episode featuring two more stories from the original big book entitled The Car Smasher and Hindsight. 
If you're new to this podcast, please note that all 11 chapters of the main section of the Big Book are in earlier episodes that you can listen to anytime. Download and subscribe for free to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen at our website, bigbookpodcast.com, where you will also find transcriptions of chapters in the main section of the Big Book. If you enjoyed listening, I'd be super grateful if you can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. And please, share this podcast with your friends and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the Big Book they ever hear. (music) 